a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery... When I was about 17 is when I tried heroin for the first time. I can tell you the exact address that I met the guy on that I picked up heroin from. I know exactly what car I was driving, and I know exactly where I stopped to take my first hit of heroin. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. If you're looking for information about the opioid epidemic, how to talk to yourself, how to talk to your doctors, go check out KnowYourScript.org. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast weekly, and for that, we say thank you. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. So, Dr. Matt. Yes, sir. Uh, I had a kind of a an eye-opening experience Yeah. this weekend. Okay. Um, I was, uh, didn't have my kids and it was, you know, the holiday weekend, uh, right. The big pioneer day celebration. Do they still do the parade thing? Yeah, there was parades everywhere. Okay. Everything was groovy. Uh, and, uh, me and the lovely Leslie got invited to a backyard party. Right. And they had a live band in the backyard Mm -hmm. and it was kind of cool. And, uh, I got invited uh, last minute, and so I wasn't sure what to bring. Is this like a friend you knew, or was yeah, it Leslie's yeah, a, friend? A, no, a friend of mine, but okay. just kind of a mutual friend, kind of new acquaintances uh, that I've been hanging out with. And okay. uh, so they were like, I said, well, do you want me to bring anything? And they go, no, I think we're pretty good on the food, but just bring whatever you want to drink. And I said, well, that's pretty easy. I don't drink, but... I'll bring some water. Well, you can drink other stuff. Yeah, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to limit myself to one diet yeah, and do so, a day. Sodas aren't good for you. Yeah, you know, yeah. and so, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to bring some. I'm well, going to bring some alcohol for them. Shut up. Swear. So you brought, okay, tell the story. So I walk into the Maverick. Yeah. Uh, and um, I go back to the beer cooler. Yeah. A beer cooler that I had visited many, many, many times. <laughs> Your beer cooler. Yeah, my beer cooler yeah. felt like home. You know what I mean? Walk in there, know where everything is. You know what I mean? It's like I came home from vacation. <laughs> and I'm looking in there, and I'm like, this is weird. Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah. And uh, in my sobriety, I have missed out on the seltzer craze. Oh, that's big now. Yes. Everybody's yeah. drinking seltzers. Right. Everybody's got a seltzer. Yeah. Uh, and seltzers, the, the, the White Claws. The 4%. And, yeah. I didn't seltzers, get everything yeah. is seltzer. And so I, you know, I was looking at all the different kinds of variety of there. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'll get a 12-pack of beer. And I'll get some seltzers. All right. And didn't even really think about it. Walked up to the, the counter. And and it's been almost three, three years. years since you've been in any beer cooler. Any beer cooler. Right. I don't have a need to go into a beer cooler. Right. But I thought, you know, I'm going to bring some, some, some libations. Yeah. You know? Okay. Okay. So I'm walking in. I put the cooler down, you know, put the beer on the counter, ring it up. Mm-hmm. As I'm walking out... Somebody's walking in. They look at me. I look at them, and they go, "Hey, Casey." I go, "Hey." They go, "Love your podcast." I go, "Thanks." They look down at the beer. They look up at me, and then they just walk in. 
Yeah. So then I get in the car, right? And literally Leslie's sitting next to me, and I'm talking to her, and I'm going, right. I, I, like, I almost wanted to turn the car off and go run back there and explain it to him. Right. And go, hey, look, this is what I'm doing. I'm still sober. I just want, but then I stopped, and I go, you know what? I don't feel like I need to. Okay. Because... As your public relations specialist, I would encourage you to have done that. Well, I'm, I'm talking about it on the podcast okay, now. Okay, that works. That but that's, works. But, so it's, that's the kind of weird thing. And then I walked into the party. and Everybody sees you. And they go, and then this in. one girl who I don't know, but I knew her boyfriend, she goes, is that Casey Scott? And the guy goes, yeah. I don't know why he's got two 12-packs in his hands. Yeah. And I, you know, and, I, and I, so I'm talking to him. And I can look at Josh's face, and I and, and tell that this is probably not a wise idea. But yeah. in, in my world, it makes sense because I'm not drinking because I don't want to. This, 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 you know what I mean? And, and so I just brought these two because that's what the party was doing. And I sat around there sober, drinking water, dancing to the band, having a great time. And, and you didn't, didn't feel like you had to explain to anybody? No. So why do you think you did that? Like... I will say this, push pause, we are very judgmental of behavior. Yeah. That's, that's what humans do. There's an evolutionary reason why and all that. So we, we can't really help but being judgmental on some level. Being non-judgmental is learned. Uh-huh. Okay. But if you can be non-judgmental about the behavior, you can say every behavior has a purpose. Don't judge it. Just try to know the reason. Why did that happen? Why did something happen? So you went in, you could have just come with some waters or some sodas, but you brought the, the alcohol. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you felt the need to do that? Maybe to prove a point. To who? And what point? Well, it's interesting that you bring this up. Um, maybe to the people at the party going, hey, look, I'm, I'm okay, and, 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 and I'm not going to be here talking to you guys about sobriety. So like a test of strength, I can carry these in and, and have them around me but not drink them? Maybe a little bit of that, you know, okay. and, and go, hey, look. And that's the thing is I don't want to be judged, you know, just without knowing the whole facts. And have somebody go, well, he does this podcast, he promotes sobriety, he promotes recovery, which I do, but I'm not anti-alcohol because I'm anti-alcohol for me. Yeah. Because I had a problem with it. And if somebody else is, seems to be able to do great, hey, that's great. And I like the debauchery. I like the people there. I like the craziness. I mean, I did. And, and, and not once was I ever tempted to have a beer, to have a shot, to do anything. I just sat there with the lovely Leslie. We listened to the band. We danced. We had a good time. And at 1030, when it started to get crazy, I looked at Leslie. I go, time to go. She goes, all right. We got in the car and we went. And then on the way home... I was sitting talking to Leslie, and I was like, you know what was weird? And normally when I say that, she just doesn't say anything because she knows <laughs> I'm about to say something else. Yeah, yeah. And I go, at that party, I maybe saw two to three people that were out of control, that had too much to drink. Okay. The rest of the people- How many people do you think were there? 60. Oh, wow. Okay. The rest of the people drank like gentlemen. Just had a normal amount. And, yeah, you know what I mean? Just had a cocktail or had a beer, sat down on the lawn chairs and talked. And I thought, where would I have been three years ago? There would have been four out-of-control people at that party. Yeah. And the fact that I went there and had a great time and even brought them beer and, I, you know, you bring up that, I don't know why I did it. Can I venture a guess? Sure. 
I don't think it has to do with proving it to anybody else. I think that's a proof to yourself. And the reason I say that is there's a theme that's come up on our show when you talk about this. And the theme is um, I can still go to places with alcohol, starting at the very beginning when your mom said, we're having a family party, uh, we'll make sure nobody's drinking, and you were just maybe a week out of or a few days out of rehab, and you said, no, that's not how I'm going to do this. I think you're testing yourself. I think you sometimes feel like maybe you need to prove to yourself that I can be that close to the alcohol and not use it. You know, and I think a lot of people listen to this and go, hey, that's a dangerous game. But I don't know any other way to do it. You know what I mean? Well, the question is, why do you feel like you need to prove it to yourself? Because I don't think you need to prove it to anybody else. Everyone else was surprised to see you with the booze in hand. Yeah. And you've, you've coming up on three years. You've been super public about it. I think everyone got the point. I think that was for you. And that's my question is, why do you think you need to prove it to yourself still? I don't know. I'll probably have to think about that. Okay. I mean, I don't have an answer, you know, mm-hmm. right. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer. I think there might be an element of self-check. And I think this is what a lot of people in recovery go through is occasionally they have to kind of double down and do a self-check and like, how am I doing? Where am I at? Am I really happy with doing things this way? Am I really happy being the sober guy at the non-sober party? And the answer to that is yes. Well, and then maybe that's part of the purpose of doing that check with yourself, proving it to yourself. I can act because that's a new thing. You just did something you have that you used to do uh, daily or, oh, or oh, yeah, daily. It was yeah, daily. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't want to put numbers in your mouth, but no, I think that's yeah, daily, daily, right? Yeah. And for a lot of years and especially those last few years. And and you haven't done it in three years. So that's a new behavior for you to go in and purchase alcohol and carry it out, you know, into your car. Um, some people would say that's sort of, uh, you know, it's it's an association. It could be even a little PTSD ish because that was a behavior that happened right before you had your DUI. You went in, you bought the beer, you went out to your car and then we know what happened. Yeah. So you did it this time, but you you stayed in control didn't drink the alcohol, gave it away when you got to the party. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not criticizing, and I'm just saying sometimes it's good to to be nonjudgmental and, and ask yourself, what purpose do my behavior serve? If you're listening to this show and you say, oh, there's no purpose, I was no, no, no. Every behavior has a purpose. It may not be a healthy purpose, but every behavior has a purpose. And if you're going to be insightful about yourself, if you're going to maintain something as hard to earn as sobriety and recovery, then you need to understand why you do what you do. And people might be asking, Casey, why are you telling this story on the radio show and the podcast? Because I promised you one thing when I started this. I'd be honest with you. Right. And that's what I'm doing. And so I do value your opinion and talking with you. And I even told Leslie, I go, I just found out what we're talking about at the first 10 minutes of the podcast. <laughs> I said, yeah. this, is, this is what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Because that's the thing is that when people see me at the party, you know, and I and I go to parties and majority of the parties, there's some sort of alcohol there. Right. Um, you know, and the crazy thing that happens and it happens without a doubt at every single party. I usually end up talking to four or five people who want to know how I did it oh, and yeah. how I'm doing it. And so, you know, they go, yeah, I think I might be drinking too much. And I go, well, the fact that you're asking me that 
It's you probably know, a good sign that you good are. Good sign. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I go, you know, the, the thing, like I wouldn't go to a party right out of the get-go like that because I don't know if I could, was strong enough. I didn't have the tools. But I felt 100% confident that I was gonna, not going to drink. And I, I feel that every morning I get up. I go, I'm not going to drink. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it doesn't even cross my mind. Mm. So I, you know, I just thought that I would bring this up to you, and no, it's good. I'm glad you brought it up. I don't. I mean, I don't know if people think there's an ulterior motive to sharing that on the show. I think that sharing our experiences is what's making the recovery community grow. And I mean, we have outlets for it now. We have social media. That's finally a good use for social media. And we have podcasts and we have other television and radio programs and things. And it's because people are talking about it. You know what it was like when we were growing up? People didn't talk about it. No. Nobody was like proud of themselves on a public platform that they weren't, you know, drinking. Celebrities were not coming out and talking about their problems and sobriety. We just knew our rock star favorites went to rehab and then they were back and you know, nobody talked about if they were sober or not. And, and I think sharing your experience and, and I like the fact that you said it's not for everybody necessarily. Like that was a pretty risky thing you did for somebody, for you. It, it didn't out. seem it didn't seem risky. It did I can tell I you think that your unconscious mind though wanted to test yourself. That's it, what I'm saying. I can tell you right now, I did not consider it a risky move when I did it. Or, or consciously. Consciously. But I bet you there was so you you you're talking to the guy who believes slash knows we have conscious mind uh-huh. and we have a pre-conscious and an unconscious mind and it's that unconscious mind sometimes gets in the driver's seat and that's where we end up doing some things that are productive or unproductive that we weren't really planning on and I think maybe that unconscious mind of yours was, was like could I do that could I test myself you know can I push mm. myself yeah uh, I mean you went to Mexico you didn't drink that yeah. was a first yeah right and, I've been to Vegas twice and haven't drink but well yeah and that's that's an accomplishment for almost anybody but especially for you and now it was like can I walk into my old stomping grounds can I go into the cave of beer and get me some alcohol and not drink it. I I just feel like there was probably something inside of you that yeah. felt like you needed to test it. You know, and I don't think that is for everybody all the time. I'm not suggesting people rush out and do that. But I can hear our good friend uh, Rob Eastman, Coach Rob Eastman, saying, "Sit in a barbershop long enough, get a haircut." Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. And like right now, he's like, "You're an idiot." <laughs> and you know, and, and there's some there's some real truth to that. Yeah, and and and, yeah. and so, but like I want to say, everyone's recovery is different. What works for me might not work for you. So don't do things that I've done because you think it's going to work find your way up sober mountain agreed but take the inspiration Mm -hmm. from what casey has done from what other people have done that's what you want to do you need to find your own way but the inspiration is what we share with each other and we're going to have a great story today on the podcast about and that that won't be exactly like anybody else's experience because it's his own. But they'll have some similarities. But they'll have some similarities and you can walk away feeling inspired even if you don't end up doing the same things that he did or that Casey did. Last question. Yeah. On a scale of one to ten. Yeah. Comparing it to past drunken deba- you use the word debauchery, which is just one of my all time favorite words. The debauchery of past parties. Yeah. How much fun did you have at this party sober? Ten. Really? Because I woke up. I didn't have to make any apologies. Okay, pump the brakes. But at the party itself, how much fun were you having at the party? 
10. Okay. I really was having a 10. I was bouncing back and forth from group to group. I was dancing with the lovely Leslie. I was listening to music. I was surrounded by friends and peers, and I had a blast. And how was Sunday for you? It was awesome. I didn't wake up with a hangover. I didn't have to apologize to anybody, and I made my 8 o'clock tea time no problem. Awesome. How'd you golf? I shot a 79. Well done. Yeah, that's a good day. <laughs> hey, we've got a great guest for you today. His name is Randy Burton. He's 30 years old. He's an MMA fighter, but he's been battling addiction. We'll find out more about that in just a few seconds. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said... You need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. I have to say that it's in his contract, right? No, it is not in my contract. Do we even have contracts? I don't think so. I'll tell you what, every day we show up and the card gets us in the building, I go, we get to do it. The card it. still works. Yeah, we get to do it another day. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Sweet action. Hey, our guest today is Randy Burton. How are you, buddy? I'm doing all right, guys. So I'm so grateful for you to come in here and share your story. Uh, you're 30 years old. You're an MMA fighter. We're going to find out about MMA in just a little bit. But where does the story of Randy begin? Um, so, yeah, I'm 30 years old, and I had just turned 30 February. Um, so it begins with, you know, I my mom was pretty much my mom and my dad when I was growing up. Um, was super grateful for that. She, you know, coached all my T-ball teams, all like, um, the four diamond teams. And once I got to be about 10, um, the dads didn't want her teaching their sons anymore. So my mom had to kind of back off of that. Um, uh, why, why was it just your mom? Did your dad bounce or? Yeah. So my dad left when I was about two. Um, and then I didn't meet him till I was about 13. Um, he, you know, he struggled with addiction also and did some prison time. Um, and I didn't ever have contact with him until I was about 13 or 14. I kind of get the years mixed up because that's right when I started using also was 13. So I could be off a couple of years with that. But you had a super mom. She stepped yeah. up and she didn't just do regular mom stuff. She did dad stuff to coach your teams. Was she a good coach? Yeah, she was. Um, even to this day, I can jump on a softball field, sober softball, and you know play with the best of them. So my well, mom was awesome. Forget those dads that didn't want her coaching. That's what well, I thought. What's their problem? And I'll tell you what, sober softball is a thing, huh, bro? It's a huge thing. Huge <laughs> in the community. A lot of people. Like I, I, like that was one of those things. And I've said it on the podcast before. I was like, wait a minute, you guys play sober softball? I didn't even know that was a thing. Because when I was in college and when we graduated college, we did that. Softball was just an excuse to get effed up. Yep, it still is too there's tons of teams you know go out and drink beer or whatever but like there's six different leagues now and we play all over the valley uh up downtown salt lake we play out in sandy west valley there's a huge huge community for sober support with softball so you said there was a certain time where the dad said hey look let's get a let's get a male guy in here let's see if he can teach our kids some stuff and so your mom yeah. was kind of relegated from her 
duties. Yeah, um, she was. And, you know, growing up with my grandparents also in my life, um, we did tons of family vacations. Uh, Lake Powell was a big trip that we would take every year. Um, my family is Italian, so we always would gather around food. Um, everybody, you know, drank normally in my family. They would have wine at dinner, um, drink beers on the weekends, barbecues, super normal. Um, I'm actually the only one in my family, my entire family that suffers with addiction. Um, and so it, it was really strange to me because I just, it was just normal, but I was definitely not normal. So you didn't see, like you weren't seeing relatives falling down drunk and have problems with it. It was alcohol was being consumed in sort of what we'd call kind of a normal fashion. It was just part of the, part of the meal, maybe part of yeah. the activity. Yeah. Now yeah. you uh, said that you have a bunch of sisters. Is that correct? I do have a bunch of sisters. Yeah. Eight. Whoa. A lot of women in my life. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's a lot of estrogen. Yes, yeah. it is. It's And it was due to marriages also because my mom got married two separate times. Uh-huh. Um, and so there was kind of integrated families. Um, and those sisters are still in my life. Um, so it's, we kind of had just a big integrated family, mm-hmm. but not yeah. blood. But what you, was that like, not having brothers to hang out? Did you ever wish you had brothers growing up? Um, yeah. So I, my mom would always make jokes with her friends and my sisters that I'm training you for when you're older. And I didn't know what that meant when I was, you know, <laughs> 9, 10, 11. Um, right. But now I can totally see that I, I treat women with a lot of respect um, due to my mom. And, and you my love sisters. the Hallmark Channel? Uh, what's no, I don't know. No, no, I do not. But I actually think that that's a good point is, it you is. know, growing up with, with a lot of sisters, with a very hands on mother. Yeah. I think that can help a, a guy kind of get out of his guy self and, and be understanding of and respectful of the women in his life. So I think that's, yeah. that's fantastic. I definitely am grateful for it. But you said at the age 13 is when you started kind of using. Yeah. So I, I remember the first time I, I smoked pot for my first time. Everyone says it's a gateway. Um, not for everybody, but it was for me. Um, I remember uh, I was with some buddies after hockey. I played hockey in high school. Um, but I was 13. I smoked out of a bong for my first time. And the first couple of hits, I didn't feel it. Um, cause I think I was expecting like this huge high because that's kind of like what the I, clouds open up, something, sun rays hitting you, like yeah. some life altering moment. Yeah, which I think a lot of people expect when the first time they try anything. Sure, because yeah. you've, you've heard of this forbidden fruit, this taboo thing, and you've seen it in movies. Yeah, and people talk about it, and there's a stereotype about what happens. But eventually, yeah. it got you. It did, and I after I you know took a few more hits, I got to the point to where I was so high that I kind of started having an anxiety attack. Like everything was starting to sh- like shift in front of me, um, and which is super common. Yeah, it happens a lot. Yep. And what's even weirder is I knew in my stomach I felt like, hey, I want to do this for the rest of my life. So even though you were having the anxiety, yeah. there was something about it that was drawing you in. Yes. Okay. What do you think um, that was? I know for me, um, growing up, I was the kid that was headbutting paper towel dispensers. I was snorting pixie sticks. I was pumping the lead out of the lead pencils, acting like I was shooting up. So I was always looking for a rise out of people. I was always wanting to be seen. I was always wanting to be heard. And I didn't feel like I ever had a voice. And so when I started smoking... Um, it made me comfortable. I started feeling like I could connect with people. I started feeling like I could look at myself and I mattered. And I can totally look back from the years of treatment that I've done and realize that a lot of it was the abandonment from my father. 
um, you know, I've read a few psychology books too, and understanding that that implicit and that explicit memory when you're forming as a child, um, I didn't realize that that's where my abandonment came from. And, you know, I've done a lot of treatment um, and a lot of self-help to understand that for myself and then to accept that. And, and I'm glad you bring that up because I think a big part of, of our, you know, maturing as whether you're a boy or a girl growing up is having a, a healthy model of both a male and a female in your life. And in your case, not having a healthy male role model right there in the house would, uh, and it does for a lot, because this is the case for a lot of boys, they kind of get into hyper-masculinity, like trying to do shocking or crazy or super tough guy stuff. And so, you know, butting the head. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And so I can see how that on the one hand, having all all the women in your life growing up was helpful in that regard, but you definitely were behind the eight ball or without direction for how to how to grow up in a healthy way as as a man. And so you start, you know, kids, little boys who grow up without a healthy male role model in their household will often turn to what are my friends doing? Uh, you know, what's going on on TV shows? What looks like the manly thing to do? And they they become like hyper in that pursuit. Um, off before we started the show, though, we were talking about some other stuff. And you also shared, in addition to obviously the abandonment issues, which were probably the primary reason that that was going on for you. There was a secondary reason, I think, and you mentioned that you, you came late into puberty and you were a lot smaller maybe than other kids. Cause what, what's happening at 12 and 13, right? That's yeah. prime time where boys are starting to shoot up. You know, I remember, uh, there's this kid named Chris, in, in seventh grade, he had like chest hair. We, we'd all be like, Oh man, Chris has got chest hair, you know, like yeah. we, we looked like little boys still and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and do you think that affected you being smaller and kind of late to puberty? Um, I definitely think it did. I was, um, in 10th grade, I was about five, seven and 112 pounds. Um, I know that's, that's when I wrestled. Okay. So you know yeah. exactly what you weighed. And, yeah. yeah. And, and what are you now? I'm 180 and I'm six foot. Yeah, he's a lot bigger now. <laughs> and an MMA fighter. But we've talked about this on the show, I think, a little bit when it comes to development. And uh, and that's that prime identity development. Who am I? Dad's not around. That's pretty rough. The other piece is, how do I fit in with everybody else? And boys who are late maturers struggle. Early mature boys are better off than late mature boys. And the reason for that is you kind of feel like a little kid and you want to feel tough and manly in junior high. Yeah, no, I, I get it. So at 13, you tried weed for the first time. Where did it go from there? So after I did um, smoked weed, uh, me and my friends would pretty much, you know, ditch school or leave early from school and we would smoke every single day. Um, at about 15 is when I started dabbling, you know, taking Xanax and I started taking mushrooms. Um, and once again, same thing with the weed. I, you know, took these pills and these mushrooms, you know, these hallucinogens and immediately I loved it. Um, I started, you know, seeing stuff move and I, once again, that connection piece, it plays out in my entire, um, search for drugs. And so I was laughing, I was having fun with these people. Um, and slowly I started graduating, you know, to harder substances and, you know, they talk about it in dare how, you know, if you start using one drugs, your inhibitions are going to lower and then you're going to search for other things. And, you know, I was, I, exactly what I was doing. 
Wow. So you're, all of a sudden you go from weed to Xanax to mushrooms. At this point, you're what, about 15, 16? Yeah. What about alcohol, though? Because I'm kind of curious. If you grew up with alcohol just being a normal part of you know, activities and dinners and stuff, did you ever drink? Like, did you ever sneak a beer when you were little or that kind of stuff? Um, I never. So I drank some like Smirnoff Ices, um, but I really didn't like how alcohol made me feel. Um, when I was, you know, detoxing off of heroin, which that's kind of further down the road that we can talk about when I was detoxing or I was coming down off ecstasy or methamphetamines, that's when I would reach for the alcohol because okay. it would take that pain away. Wow. I mean, that, that, that kind of just jumped forward. So we know where Big we're time. going, but how do we get from, um, 16 years old to heroin. Yeah, talk about high school. What was high school like? Um, high school, I was definitely in kind of the pop, more popular crowd. I had a lot of friends, um, but I was always like the outcast. You know, my friends had girlfriends, and I was always the one that was acting out, and I was trying to, you know, prove a point. Um, I didn't do good in school. Um, I got low grades, you know, C's, D's, and F's. Um, a lot of it was because I didn't think that I was good enough. I went through resource classes um, through elementary, junior high, and high school, and so I was immediately in my own mind set out from everyone else around me. Were you and, diagnosed with like ADHD or yeah. any learning disabilities? Or um, so I have pretty bad dyslexia um, and like to the point where unless I sit down and really focus on what I'm writing, I will write something and I will skip whole entire words. Um, mm. And so that was, I definitely didn't feel like I was okay. And even to this day, I don't, right if i don't have to um so going through school and always needing this acceptance from everybody else around me when i started finding the drugs um school and everything else became secondary um i was extremely athletic growing up i like i said my mom did my uh, baseball teams i played hockey in high school um indoor soccer Uh, i also played rugby um so i did all of these sports um snowboarding, paintballing, golfing. And when I was about 17 um, is when I tried heroin for the first time. And I can tell you the exact address that I met the guy on that I picked up heroin from. I know exactly what car I was driving and I know exactly where I stopped to take my first hit of heroin. How did, walk me through the process. How does one go from Xanax, weed, mushrooms to, hey, I think heroin would be a good idea. I mean, I mean, because I'm imagining there's got to be a conversation in your head that, that goes, well, this is probably not a good idea. It goes, but what about this? And then all of a sudden that guy wins and you're like, now you know what car you're in, you know where you stopped. So, I mean, it had to be a pretty good conversation. Yeah. So a lot of my friends were doing the Oxycontins. That's where all, so I did Oxycontin a couple times, but it was so freaking expensive that there was no way that I could afford it. And so unless my friends had the Oxycontin 80s, or the oxycodone 30s, there was no way that I was getting it. Um, and you did know, you like how those made you? Feel? I did. Um, I did it a few times, and once again, it, it made me sick, just like the heroin did. Um, but I liked it. I, I really, really liked it. It um, it made everything numb. Um, I didn't have to think about how less of a person I was than everybody else around me. And it was just made me comfortable for the few hours that it was in my system. Boy, isn't that a common, common story? And I'm sure, Randy, you've talked to plenty of people that relate to that. I know we've had a lot of people on the show that it's it's like that emotional numbing out. You know, we have yeah. traumas, abandonments, things like that. And when you find something that 
helps that go away for a time, it's pretty tough to turn it down. Well, I think he just said it. It made me not care that I was less than a person of the people I was with. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And Which, of course, Randy, I think you know now, is was just the perception of a kid who, who was struggling. Obviously, absolutely. you weren't less than those people, but... But that was your identity. That was your self-perception. And that's yeah. that's heavy stuff to carry around. So you tried heroin. Do you smoke it, snort it, shoot it? Um, I've done all of it. I've, I started out smoking it. Um, I smoked it for probably six years. Um, and in that time frame from 17 to about 22, um, I ended up selling all of my hockey gear, pawning my paintball guns, my snowboard equipment. Um, stealing from my family and ended up uh, homeless um, downtown Salt Lake, just a couple miles from where we are right now. Now, what does your family go through? Uh, what did they do when this started to become a huge problem? Um, at first, they they weren't really sure what I was doing. And so, you know, they would ask me and I, I would kind of be honest um, about some of the things I was doing, but I was not telling them about the heroin use. Um, but they tried to get me into treatment. They tried, um, you know, helping me with jobs with family members. And so they were enabling me, extremely enabling me. But that's, that, that's the crazy thing is, is they think they're helping. Yeah. And they're doing what any parent would do yeah. given the information that they have. Yeah. Well, part of defining enabling is not, I mean, you can look at it as what the parent does or the, you know, the caregiver does, but probably a better definition is how does the kid respond? Yeah. So offering help can be helpful or mm-hmm. it can be enabling. It depends on how the person responds, right? That's interesting. Yeah, you're exactly right, though. It's how I'm so, taking the help. So that's why we want to be a little careful not to blame parents uh, that jump in and try to rescue and help because maybe that behavior with a different person in a different time would have resulted Su- in success, success. right? Yeah. And so we have to be a little careful. After a while, though, then the parents or whoever it is, they do need to pump the brakes and realize, ah, uh, you know, hang on, well, this a, isn't working And that's out. what it sounded like Randy's parents did because you ended up homeless. They definitely did do that. Um, and you're exactly right with the, how was I accepting the help? I... I really wasn't ready to quit. You know, I was lying by omission with everything that I was doing. So ultimately I was willing to take the help just so they would get off of my back about everything. Mm. And so I was immediately manipulating um, and justifying what I was doing. And it got to the point where I would get a little bit clean. I would start to look healthier and then I would start asking them for money again and then right back down the hole I would go. Um, A vicious cycle. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It was day in and day out and, um, you know, locking myself in the bathroom and I could see their feet underneath the door, like trying to listen if there was a lighter spark or what I was doing and, you know, taking 45 minute showers. Um, we're in a drought, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this was a couple of years ago. Okay. So we're, okay. we're fine. It's why um, we're in a drought. Because <laughs> Randy, Randy showers. Thanks, Randy. Yeah. <laughs> we cracked the case. Um, and it, it's crazy how... Uh, how much it's changed with my family because now it's they they know all of my patterns they know um you know the top five relapse you know things that i do which is not answering my phone not texting back and not showing up um for commitments with them or for other people and now my family if if i use it's it's get out it's you know don't come back so they they have a line they have a tr- strong line yeah. healthy boundaries alanon helped my family a lot oh alanon's great for yeah. families anybody who's listening and struggling with am i being helpful or am i enabling 
Al-Anon is a good resource to kind of help you figure that out. Absolutely. You're listening to Project Recovery. We're going to take a break. Coming up, we're going to find out where Randy hit rock bottom and what he's doing now. Welcome back. We're here with Randy Burton, 11 months sober. Uh, how long would you say you battled with addiction? Um, so I went to my first treatment center in 2009, um, not fully knowing that I was you know, an alcoholic or a drug addict. To me, they're the same thing. Um, and my first use was when I was 13, like I said earlier. And so long enough to uh, earn my seat as in the alco- rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or just in recovery in general. Um, you know, I went from, you know, smoking weed on a daily basis to shooting heroin on a daily basis and then shooting meth and heroin. Um, that was at the end of my using. And, you know, my last use was August 20, August 1st, um, of this year. And so I'm coming up on a year and man, it's, it's been a super up and down ride, but there's been so many growth opportunities for me in recovery and in addiction. And that's something that I've really have come to respect about myself. You know, the willingness and the openness and the vulnerability that I need as a person um, to continue to grow. And so when I was at my lowest low, I... Let me ask you this. Was your last day, your last use, was that your rock bottom or was your rock bottom maybe a week before? It was probably four months before that. See, I think that's interesting to bring up because a lot of people think that the rock bottom is your rock bottom the next day, you know, is when you move. But there's still a lot to process in between there. There's a lot of yeah. ducks to get in a row. There's a lot of what you call pre-contemplation right. and, and going, okay, this is stages of behavior change and you, 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 everybody has to work through them. Yeah. So walk me through your rock bottom. Okay. So my rock bottom is, so I was in Midville. Um, around all the hotels right there off of 7200 South. It's very well known um, for people like me. And that's just outside of Salt Lake for listeners outside just, of the yeah. state. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I remember it was it was the end of summer right into fall. And I I remember it kind of started raining. And it, it's, a, it's that cold fall rain. Um, I was behind the savers on 7200 South and I had – Thankfully, there was, you know, two big fridge boxes that were back there. I cut one of the fridge boxes in half. You know, there was plastic in the fridge box. And so I, you know, stacked the fridge boxes up on top of each other, made myself like a little nook, a little house, whatever you want to call it, put the plastic over um, so I didn't get wet. Um, How long had you been homeless at that point? Probably four or five months. So real hot, nice summer days, you know, getting high, being miserable. Um, but towards that end, I was getting to where I was, you know, I was getting sick if I wasn't using the heroin every single, you know, two or three hours. And with that rain and the mixture of walking around, um, you know, up and down 72, trying to find drugs and the bottoms of my feet, um, were almost completely deteriorated, um, from the meth that I was shooting so often and from the walking that I couldn't take a few steps without stopping. So you were shooting into your feet? Um, into my arms. Okay. And the acetone and the meth shoots through your body right. and it will come out of your feet. Um, so it was eating oh the bottoms gosh. of my feet off. And I'm guessing you didn't really have money. So how were you getting no. your your drugs at that time? Um, I was panhandling. Um, 
we, uh, me and Casey talked about, you know, that silver tongue, even though I was in addiction and I looked, you know, you know, like death warmed over, I was able to, um, approach certain people, um, and ask them for money. Um, you know, my, my target person was, uh, you know, a middle-aged woman, um, with, you know, either someone with her or a boyfriend and a girlfriend, because I, I know enough about the mind that if I ask the male um, for some money, he's going to want to give it to me just so he can look good in front of the female. And so, like, I'm smart enough to know that stuff. You're using the psychology. Yeah. The, uh, just manipulation yeah, to yeah. its core. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, sleeping in the box, walking around when it's, you know, freezing rain and to the point of where I'm pulling on doors of hotels trying to get in to just get out of the cold and that pain from being dope sick to where my joints are hurting, my knees are hurting, and I just need to get warm for a second. Did you ever get into breaking and entering, taking things, selling them, pawning them, that kind of stuff? Um, I did steal some rings from my family um, because they were an easy target. Um, I was always really scared, and I never broke into anybody else's houses. Um, You know, I... I never stole from stores unless it was food um, because I was always so paranoid that I was being watched. Um, So I never got into like stealing cards and, you know, stealing stuff from stores to pawn, but I did steal um, rings from my family. From your family. Yeah. But the panhandling, it seemed like you had a system that worked out for you. Yeah, it did work. So Um, you're behind the savers. You're in your makeshift home. Yeah. uh, And this is your rock bottom? Yeah. And I think it was a day, maybe two days later, I was, you know, walking in the same area and, you know, thankfully my mom, um, always the person to show up and support in a healthy way. Now, um, she pulled up, um, I was walking down the street and she pulled up, put her car in parked and walked over and grabbed my arm and just saw the track marks going down my arm and just the tears in her eyes and the pain that I was feeling from, not having my son in my life for two years, my uh, marriage um, went down the drain because of my addiction. And so this shame, this guilt, this hopelessness that was inside of me, um, it, I had that moment of clarity. You know, my mom looked at me and said, are you going to die like this? And thankfully, um, I, you know, I heard her, I seen her and it got me up to uni which is now I think called the um, Huntsman Psychiatric. Huntsman Mental Health Institute. Okay. It's the it's a freestanding psychiatric hospital here in Salt Lake City. Yep. Yeah, it's a great place. I've been there many times. Yep. <laughs> I've been there once, but I liked it. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It's a, it's a lifesaver. And so I went up there and, you know, I did the detox. I got out. Um, now, mind you, I stayed sober for a minute. And then I had one more relapse that was extremely bad. Um yeah, you took it back out for a test drive. I did. I t- took a little test drive. And, you know, it's strange how how the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, um, is always there for you. You know, I, I had someone give me a very large amount of meth. Um, I ended up doing 16 grams of methamphetamine in four days. Um, and I used heroin twice. And I overdosed both times when I used the heroin. Um, and I overdosed twice in a 24 hour period. Um, thankfully the people that I was with the first time they had Narcan, the second time they didn't have Narcan and they pretty much drug me back into the hotel room and threw me in the cold shower and hoped I woke up. Um, and then 
also shot me up with a little bit of meth to jumpstart my heart or to give me adrenaline. Thankfully, that worked. Wow. And after that, I've been sober. So you've been not, you knocked on death's door multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely have. Um, I also have two suicide attempts in the past. Um, I was in jail detoxing one of many times. And I, all, I got this idea, you know, that I, I haven't seen my son. I'm in jail again. So I'm going to use my pants and I'm going to hang myself in my cell. And it's strange because I've always believed that this part of me, this ego part of me, um, has been running my life kind of like the unconscious of what you were talking about. And I, I put the pants around the bar and I tied the pants, put them around my neck. And for some reason in my heart, I knew that I wasn't going to die. Um, and then I remember saying out loud, let's see how deep this rabbit hole goes. And so I started to crocodile spin with my pants around my neck. Oh. Um, I whited out. I felt my tongue fall out of my mouth and everything went white. And then after that, I saw an image of my son come at me, but it like went through me. And then I woke up with 10 guards in the cell cutting me down basically. Mm. Um, so once again, at death's door, uh, what did that experience mean to you? Um, so that experience I feel was, was the only way that I had to come to my own senses. Um, I have a super extreme spiritual belief um, you know, about spirit and about the universe. And immediately after, um, I got a book that was called the power of now written by Echo Hart Tooley. Um, and then at the end of that book, it literally talks about stepping into death consciously. And that's what I did. Um, not realizing that's what I was doing, but after I read that, it put words to my experience. Hmm. You've lived a life brother. Yeah. And so how did you get sober this time? Um, a lot of treatment. Um, lot Tell me, of like, did you, inpatient treatment? Yeah. So I've, I've done seven. Um, my first one was 2009. You're close to the record. The record's nine. I think, yeah. It's <laughs> a lot. Yeah, but seven. seven. Seven works. But let seven me, times the charm. Yeah, but let me ask you this. Every time you went treatment, did you learn something valuable? I absolutely did. Um, from... You know, the Cush plush treatment centers to Odyssey House, First Step, um, there was, you know, there was a common theme in all of them. Um, you know, it was willingness to do the next right thing, honesty, and just being open, you know, to new experiences and connection. Those were the big, big major things that I've learned. We say this on the podcast all the time. Uh, the opposite of addiction is an abstinence. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And you have found out through your seven times in recovery, <laughs> that connection is so important. So you found something that connected with you. What was that? Um, Like-minded people. You know, I was in the rooms um, doing the AA stuff for quite a long time, and I, f I found people that were, you know, working to better themselves, working to be sober. And then over time, um, Eastman Fitness came about. Um, FTR came about, Fit to Recover. And these communities were – Bringing people together, you know, doing service opportunities, showing up when you don't want to show up. There's little things that these communities have in common. And then the people that are involved with them, um, you know, Ian Acker is an amazing person. And he was, you know, my sponsor at one point um, taught me a lot about showing up no matter what, because it was hard for me to show up for a long, long time. Um, and what he what he brought, his energy that he brought, 
was you know, very um, accepting. There was a gentleness about him. Even when you shook his hand, you could feel that there was a softness in his heart. And that's what I needed. I needed people that were going to love me when I couldn't love myself and people that were not, uh, Rob Eastman says this, people that are no men, not yes men, because the yes men are going to keep me in my addiction. People that validate me, people that pat me on the back when what I need to hear is you know, the real honest truth. You're messing up. You're doing stupid stuff. Yeah. Those are true friends. Rob, um, a few times was, would call my relapses. He'd be like, you're going to relapse, dude. You're, you're on the path. And I'm, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm good. I, I got this famous yeah. last words. I got this Yeah. months later. I was gone, homeless back on the cycle. And I look back and, um, with the willingness, you know, if I'm willing to be open to listen to people, um, that's going to show how willing I am to be sober to change my life. People are here to help me. So how do you go from barefoot, walking on 7200 South, homeless, acetone, eating through the bottom of your feet to stepping into an MMA ring? Um, so... I've always loved fighting. Um, you know, I grew up fighting in school, you know, head, button, paper, towel, dispensers. Um, it was always just really natural for me to fight. I wasn't a fight starter. I just was a fight finisher. Um, and I think that's how you win. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'm not a fighter. Yeah. I'm a lover, not a fighter, but I think that's how you win. Yeah. You can be a lover and a fighter. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's cool. possible. Um, so 2013, um, I got with a buddy named Johnny McGee. He kind of, you know, told me about some MMA gyms in the Valley. And so I went and kind of checked them out. Um, and I fell in love with it. And I think internally, um, from my own beliefs, you know, I've been a warrior, um, in past lifetimes. And so I feel like it's just natural for me to, to get into the ring with somebody or to square up with somebody and, you know, time literally starts to slow down and I can move what any way that I want. It's almost like an artist when they paint. Um, I feel extremely free and I feel extremely connected, hyper-focused. And when I started going to the MMA gyms, um, that spark inside of me that I was looking for with drugs, that spark inside of me that I was looking for to be seen kind of started to, to flame a little bit. Um, and you know, fast forwarding a little bit, I went to four or five different gyms. Um, I found my home at Eastman fitness and, you know, Rob's taught me a ton of stuff, not just from wrestling or striking, but just from life. Um, and getting into the actual ring was something that I was not nervous at all for. Um, it was almost like I had already done this before. That's how I felt when they locked the bull, um, very surreal and, um, almost like a deja vu and, you know, getting in there and the hard work, the the consistency, the commitment, the integrity that comes with training at that level um, is is something that you have to build and find. It's not just in somebody. Um, it's a lot of process of pain and suffering. Breaking through the suffering and getting to that other side is ultimately what I feel like life is about. But fighting has taught me those concepts. And uh, let's go a little further into your kind of metaphysical and spiritual beliefs. You're wearing a really cool necklace that I was commenting on. Tell us a little bit about that. And then, and then tell us how that, that metaphysical and spiritual beliefs, how has that helped your uh, process of recovery? 
So tell us about the necklace first. It's so, cool. Yeah. So the necklace, um, you know, me and so my it's girlfriend. Like a, it's like a big as a monkey's thumb. Yeah. It's so it's a big piece of um, smoky quartz. It's got a little bit of hemp wrapped around it and then, uh, you know, silver um, linking it to the chain. Um, it just kind of representing and bringing in calmness to the situation, uh, clarity for life. And, you know, I wear this because it it just reminds me, um, you know, where I'm at and what I'm doing because that calm nature, that mindfulness nature, that being, um, that human being instead of a human human doing, that's what a lot of people are, are about nowadays. If I get these tasks done, then I'm going to feel better. Um, but the being is being lost. And I feel like in my recovery – um, being able to slow stuff down and being able to be present in the moment is something that I've been working on for a long time. And that's kind of what drugs gave me also. They gave me that sense of peace and knowing that I was okay. The spirituality side for me in recovery um, is, is it's grown immensely. Um, you know, I look back on my own patterns and understanding how much my ego and my pride played a part in what I was doing and then how much I had to prove to other people that I was good enough. Um, kind of like what Casey was talking about with the beer situation. Um, it's, I think it was totally normal for you to want to go back inside and be like, Hey, this is what I'm doing because internally, like we want to show that we're doing okay. And then I really loved how you said, um, you know, I don't have to go do that because I don't have to prove to anybody today. Because in my heart, I know what the real answer is. Um, branching off into my own beliefs about religion and about spirituality and how I hear people contradicting themselves and saying, this religion's bad, that religion's bad, your path is wrong. If you're a true spiritual person, how ignorant would I be to tell you how or what or who God is? And I think when I understood that concept for myself, that everybody's path is their own, just like a perspective and being able to walk your own path and live your own life and give your own merit for the gratitude of what you have is ultimately what we're here for. Um, listening to that inner spirit, that inner voice, you know, we all have that little angel and that devil on our shoulder um, telling us to go right or left or to make, you know, these choices. We're born with that and I don't think it ever goes away, but. The more you feed that dark side, the louder it's going to get. Um, I know for me, listening to my spirit guides, um, you know, praying on a regular basis, whatever your prayer looks like, I think just giving gratitude, um, understanding that the connection is real. And if I cloud my judgment, if I cloud my mind with substances, if I stop listening to my heart and stop listening to the people that love me unconditionally then ultimately I'm going to continue to fall back into those patterns. I'll tell you what. That's well said. Well I was said. sitting there and I, I, was, I wanted to say hallelujah at yeah. the end because you were saying all the right things. And it sounds like you have really put a lot of thought into this. And, you know, through your pain and suffering, you've come to a better realization of who you are and what life's all about. I love the fact of the necklace. I love so much about you. You know, I mean, I don't know if we've ever talked about this bracelet on the podcast. Frankie, actually, my daughter, gave me this when I was in rehab. The first time they came and saw me, which mm -hmm. wasn't a good day, ended up being a great day. Uh, they were, I'm sitting there at the front, and my mom's driving my kids out the front gate. Mm. The brake lights come on. Frankie jumps out, and she runs up to me and goes, Oh, Dad, I forgot. I made you this. 
And I put it on, and I've never taken it off since. And it says loving hope. And I I don't know you how many times I look at that throughout the day. And every time I do it, it reminds me that I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Yep. And so I understand having something on there that brings you a calmness, that helps you understand that the path you're on is the right path. And that's what uh, recovery is. You've got to do it for yourself. Everybody else benefits when you're sober, but the reason Very you're true. doing it is not for them. It's for you because you're a better person this way. I appreciate you stopping by, Dr. Matt. Any last thoughts? I just love your energy. I, I can tell that what you're talking about is genuine and authentic, this person that you've become and uh i think you know not just for your son but for other people as you go forth and share that energy it's going to be a real positive experience so what i'd really love to do is uh check back with i think randy's one of those guests that is on you know at the beginning of a really exciting journey i'd love to check back with you uh in the future if that's okay absolutely Awesome. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, Project Recovery is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And Project Recovery is what, Dr. Matt? It's a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.